Hey guys, this is Jack from The Wages of Cinema. Uh, thank you for listening to this very special episode of uh, the podcast, uh, which we re-recorded live. Uh, we'd like to thank the uh, Midland Park Library for giving us the facility. Uh, now, just a technical note, um, there was uh, a little bit of a problem uh, with the audio for part of the podcast, so if it sounds like voices are a little bit closer or farther away, uh, sorry about that, but... Uh, the problem actually got fixed halfway through. And also one more thing, uh, we used clips uh, during the show, which you may hear, uh, but it would probably be best if you actually go to YouTube and just type in the Wages of Cinema animation show. Um, you can also find it at my YouTube page. Uh, just search for Jack Catanella. And you can see all of the clips that we used, and that may help... Uh, as a visual tool when you're watching the show, or listening to the show, I should say. So with that said, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks. sign applaud sign okay thank you, thank you. and thank you and welcome to uh, the very first live wages of cinema presentation i'm Woo! andrew yeah yeah applause for andrew and i'm jack Woo! and one more applause for me um so uh we're here tonight uh because we want to uh give a kind of a presentation and overview of some of the most important animated films ever made and specifically the well, originally it was top ten. Technically, it goes into eleven because uh, we can count however we want. It's our podcast. Exactly. So, um, yeah, and I think part of the idea, right, was that we wanted to kind of look at how uh, animation has moved over time uh, from one movement into another and has expanded from one place to another until we're here At now in 2015. It's been around basically for a little shy of a hundred years, and we also want to give you a bit of an overview of that. So, to start off with, we have this idea. Guillermo del Toro uh, is, a fa is a famous director of uh, horror fantasy. He said, the tragedy of animation is that most people view it as a genre instead of as a medium. Uh, we all have uh, many, uh, most mainstream animation is geared towards families, uh, towards children, and basically that's because it's designed to appeal to a very wide audience. And the reason for that is because animation is two things. A, it's super expensive, and B, it's super hard to make. Uh, all the animated films that we see are really works of craftsmanship by very dedicated people. And you have to appeal to a very wide audience in order to get your profit, basically. Exactly. So what we've dedicated this epi episode to is people who took chances and went in a different direction. That's right. The whole, you know, especially when you look at history, not everything is created in a vacuum, uh, but at the same time... When it comes to animation, one of the other things that we wanted to do was to show that it's not all just Disney. I mean, we are going to have some <laughs> Disney here, so don't be nervous. 
If uh, one fifth of it is Disney, <laughs> something like that. I, I don't know if I count percentages like Andrew does. But uh, the thing that's important also to realize is that animation is a medium. It's a way of telling stories, and animation isn't just in animated films. I mean, here's a big example right here. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, I have a picture of King Kong on the screen. Uh, yes, King the one Kong and only. is an animated figure. He's a he was a stop motion animated puppet moved one frame at a time 24 frames per second yes uh jason and the argonauts these skeletons here in this are animated figures they're little statues from the one and only uh, ray harryhausen of course yeah. and star wars live action film those lightsabers that you see are animated they're uh there are no you know when they're filming there is no glowing rod right there they painted that in more or less after the fact uh very small use of animation but still to highlight the storytelling. Yeah. And, you know, some films are basically all animation, more or less. <laughs> uh, any, any big budget blockbuster has its share of animation. Uh, so it's basically uh, a method of telling the stories. So what happens when you make an entire film out of everything? Yeah. And, uh, also, the, and also the question is, too, you know, you ask yourself, what is animation even today? What Do you even count it animation if... Uh, for example, all the actors in it are actually live-action shot on stage. And yet, this is not a new practice, and that's something else that we're going to show, I think, tonight as well, right? But let's get on to the, the first film. The first film we're going to talk about is a movie from 1926, uh, widely regarded as the first feature-length animated film. Yeah. The ver and yeah. this is The Adventures of Prince Achmed, yeah. now, uh, the made thing by German director uh, Lottie Reininger. Yeah, so what I could say about this is, uh, uh, before we get to the clip, um, now, for those of you who don't know about this, and maybe a, a number of you don't, uh, this is kind of considered the very first animated film that's still available today. Uh, there were a couple of feature animated films made in South America, but they're lost. Uh, so this is the only one that's still available, and in particular from the silent era. And what's most interesting is uh, this director, uh, Lottie Reininger, uh, made this entire film out of uh, puppets, you could say. They were cutouts that she put against uh, backdrops uh, that she had created herself, her and her husband. And Here's an example. Here's a shot from the film. Yeah, and uh, so as you could see, you know, the, the black uh, figures are set against the uh, the backdrop that has its own design and... Throughout the film, there's a lot of techniques done to add color, which doesn't necessarily have to, you know, because it's black and white, they used, uh, you know, things like tints and uh, filters, I think. Yeah, uh, originally this film, when they shot it, was in black and white, but they managed to add color to it by basically cutting out strips of film and dipping them in dyes to dye the celluloid. That's where this yellowish, uh, greenish color comes from. Yeah. And they would do that sometimes for just one frame of film, sometimes for whole uh, feet of film, and then they'd splice it all back together into one reel. Yeah. And, of course, at the time, people, uh, when, when this director finally finished her movie and tried to show it around to people in 1926, uh, people were initially resistant to it because fairy tales were still seen as things squarely for children. And they, this, this is a fairy tale. It's, it's worth pointing out that uh, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed is, is an adaptation of the Arabian Nights. Yeah, so you get Aladdin in this story, and you get uh, stories involving him and... Uh, Genies, sorcerers, things like things that. Things like that. Uh, but it's still uh, staggering because of, of the attention to detail. These black figures are hand-cut out. 
Yes. By by the artist, Lottie Reiniger made most of these herself, and herself, and she articulated them like puppets. It's, yeah. It takes a lot of work. So uh, let's let's actually show maybe a demonstration. I think that would give uh, the best example of how this came out. All right. So hopefully this works. So I wish I can get the screen even bigger, but I think that's as big as it gets for right now. Control what? Oh, thank you. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so what you're seeing <laughs> what you're seeing here what we're showing a clip of is a man who is moving around in uh, almost this is like the a dance like pose. The film. It's the source where he's making uh, what will become a mechanical horse. But all those amorphous blobs that you see are, are actually ink blocks that are dropped onto the uh, onto the shooting stage. Yes. Oh, 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 wrong, wrong time. Spoilers. Sorry. <laughs> Spoiler warning. Okay. But you can see from uh, the articulation of the of the puppet there how it moves. That it's a very complex piece of uh, piece of artistry. Yeah. I mean, it has fingers that individually moves. It has eyes that you can see through uh, through uh, different sort of holes to give it a personality. Uh, really intricately done yeah if you ever get a chance to seek out the full movie it's uh, it's a pretty extraordinary piece and it actually holds up really well because like any good silent film you can follow along the story uh through all the images and a lot of dynamic stuff in it i remember when we watched this i was just kind of blown away by what they were able to get away with and uh and luckily, the film did get seen it took a little while for it to kind of make its way around uh uh, countries in Europe, uh, with a little help actually from John Renoir. Uh, he was friends with the filmmakers and uh, thankfully got them into some theaters. Yeah. Fortunately, it's more widely available now on DVD, but there's still a lot of people who hasn't, haven't seen it or know it exists. Yes. And the reason is partially because of our next film, which uh, is <laughs> widely regarded as the most, as the first feature length animated film, but uh, actually. Uh, comes after this by more than 10 years. Yeah, now of course this is the first synchronized sound animated film. In other words, that this was the first time that Walt Disney taking a lot of the techniques that he had developed for several years with his short films, uh, he finally decided, all right, I'm going to go and make a feature. And part of that was because he had to. He was running out of money. Uh, he had to put all of his resources into making this one big thing. Talk and about Snow White, by the way. Yes, I, I think I mentioned that, uh, hopefully. Uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And, uh, and yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because when we watch this movie, it holds up, but you have to take it in a certain context. It's, yeah, it's kind of weird like that. But let's start with the, the story of the, of the production. It started production in, uh, in 1934 uh, when yeah. they started writing the script. And it took four years to make, came out in 38, and 
between the beginning of production and the end, Disney's staff doubled from 300 to 600. It took. Yeah. Uh, Disney was really uh, very focused on quality because he knew that if this film didn't succeed, it uh, basically probably the company would go under. Yeah. So he he really took a lot of time to figure out the story first. I think that was one of his main aims was to make sure that the story was as tight as possible. Um, so actually today, if you get the DVD, there are deleted scenes from the movie. Like that's how much he was really wanted to be as careful as possible to make it as compact and for everything to flow. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he was also still experimenting this whole time. He was doing shorts to try to make sure that he had the right equipment. Uh, there's a short film that you can check out online called The Old Mill, which is one of the Silly Symphonies. And the short film actually is one of the first big times where they use what's called the multiplane camera, where they have a picture of it uh, right here. Oh, thanks for fashioning that. Um, <laughs> it it's a it's a device that moves into the frames of the animation, so it gives it more depth, it gives it a little bit greater intensity, and uh, so this and this short is really a great one to look at. And he Disney even mentions that. He did this as an experiment to make sure that it could work, that he could use it for the movie. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the movie's full of songs and uh, cute animal characters. Um, but it also, it, it has a lot of things. It has, it has comedy. Uh, it has a lot of drama. Uh, when you see the queen transform, that has still a lot of depth and a lot of uh, like that not that color exactly but you get the idea um and uh you know and it, i think it's a movie that tries to have it all as much as possible well yeah disney was trying to go for a very wide audience because he knew that this was going to be a large undertaking he had to maximize the audience to get as many people as as he could and he succeeded in that this film made $8 million in the box office at a time when movie tickets cost 23 cents yeah. for adults and 10 cents for children. So even if mostly children saw this movie, still, that's a lot <laughs> it, of dimes. For, until for, for a period of like two years, it was the highest grossing movie like ever. It was finally dethroned by Gone with the Wind. And But still, uh, what... I think number 10 in all-time grossing movies when adjusted for inflation. Yeah. Uh, major success. If it had failed, Disney might not exist today. Yeah. Uh, but this convinced people that ge that audiences generally were interested in feature-length animated films. Mm. And other companies soon joined in. So let's uh, check out a quick clip. Uh, some of you guys uh, know this, I think. Is the sound coming out of here or the sound coming out of All right. I... I guess there's no way to prove that. I mean, you can still hear it okay, right? Good. It is worth noting, too, that the dwarfs are wholly the invention of Disney. As part of the process of adaptation, you have to make the most out of all the characters. So he gave the dwarfs names, he gave them personalities, he, uh, he, gave, uh, he gave some of them even plot points throughout the, the story. And they are one of the, the standout features of the entire film. There were dwarves, they just didn't get names at all. No. They were and just like, there were seven dwarves. That's it. And they went through dozens and dozens of names. And Dopey, of course, was uh, a last-minute name on the film. Uh, and ma mainly inspired by ha uh, Harpo Marx. Uh, <laughs> you know. 
That's pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was worked on by. Uh, I don't remember who exactly wrote the script, but it was constantly going through revisions due to Walt Disney's. Uh, due to Walt Disney's uh, hands-on technique. I mean, he would see the discard entire scenes and then... Oh, who wrote the fairy tale? I would yeah, say it's Grimm. It's Grimm. No problem. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, a little bit different than the Grimm fairy tale, of course, but uh, it... Um, make sure I pause it there. Um, but, of course, you know, it went through a lot of writing and a lot of changes. It's also interesting to note that the movie almost... Uh, it almost bankrupted Disney, and I think that actually happened a couple of times in his career. Yeah. And it was uh, one a famous story is that he showed the movie to like the Bank of New York, like not the Bank of New York, the head of the Bank of America, and the movie wasn't even finished, and Walt actually had to walk, act out a couple of scenes. And then they, when the movie was done, the 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 banker wasn't really saying anything. He was just kind of making small talk, and Walt Disney was like. What'd you think? What'd you think? And he wasn't really saying anything. He finally gets in the car and he's like, oh yeah, this is going to be a monster hit. Don't worry. You got all the money. And <laughs> and that's how Snow White came to be. Uh, one more fact before we go on. Uh, there were no Oscars for animated films and this was a major success. So Disney did get an honorary Oscar that was one big Oscar and seven, seven little ones. Aww. Aww. Yes. Um, so Disney went on uh, from 1938 to have a string of successes uh, financially and artistically in animation, although by the end of the 50s they were starting to go into a downward slide. And then comes the rise of smaller animation studios and smaller productions that uh, are staggering their artistic achievement. One of those is a movie called Fantastic Planet. Yeah, or uh, or Planet. Oh, we got so we got a fan over there. Or Planet Sauvage, or I don't know how you say it in French. Because it, it was a French Czech co-production. Part uh, the production was actually halted, uh, or uh, was actually encumbered by the invasion of Czechoslovakia by the Soviets in the seventies. Uh, yeah, so but it, this came out in nineteen seventy three, uh, and it was directed by a man named uh, Ray, uh, Rene Laloux who was a French animator, and during the 50s and 60s, he was actually working in a mental institution, uh, using art therapy as a way for the uh, patients to deal with their problems, and one of his projects was animation. He and these patients uh, made several animated shorts, and when one of his shorts got recognized on Paris t uh, television, he began, began making greater plans, and eventually uh, Fantastic Planet was one of his feature releases. Yeah. So, um, and this this book this movie is actually based on a book by a sci-fi author uh, named uh, Wools. I'm Stefan Wools, and you know it was more about trying to put a poetic vision across. I mean, there is a story to the movie. Uh, and in short, I mean, the movie's kind of about like these little blue people. They're almost like androids, and there's this kind of power struggle between these blue people and uh, Humans. You know, yeah, humans. Humans are actually much smaller than these blue people. Uh, they, yeah. And they're treated almost like pests or uh, like mice. Yeah, and then and you... it's about yeah. the, uh, the human struggle to basically assert themselves, to keep themselves from being exterminated. Yeah, do you keep yourself as a pet or do you try to overcome uh, your masters? Kind of, I guess in a way it takes a little bit from Planet of the Apes maybe or... It's, it's, it's that vain. Um, but you know, it's actually a very yeah. interesting story in that it's an allegory 
that doesn't necessarily stand for one thing. You can look at this film and say that, well, it's an allegory for racism or it's an allegory for animal rights or it's an allegory for basically treating people who are weaker than you nicely. Uh, but you can look at it and see a whole bunch of different interpretations because the art style is just staggering. Yeah, let's, you know what? I, I think yes, pictures speak louder reason. than words. <laughs> let's uh, show a little bit from this. Sorry the audio is a little low, but hopefully you can see it on the screen there. No, this was after uh, the director moved on to much larger productions. Yes. Uh. Okay, and now we've had our acid trip for the evening. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll have more. Um, we'll see how it goes. Young. Yeah, so as you could see, it was a style that, as Andrew might have mentioned, a little bit more in line with uh, Terry Gilliam's style. Yeah, where it's it was actually, cutouts. most of it is animated with the use of paper cutouts. It's yeah. not, uh, some parts are painted, some parts are animated in a cell type, but a lot of the moving parts that you see in certain scenes are just basically paper cutouts that they move across the screen, kind of in the way that Lottie Reininger made her uh, animation. Yeah, and, and so while this was happening in France, you had in the UK uh, another type of movement when it came to... Uh, independent animation. Uh, hopefully, I'm not getting ahead of myself. If you no, have you're, more you're, to talk you're right about, on track. but um, the next film that uh, comes in this kind of independent wave is uh, Watership Down, which uh, I see some of you gasping in awe. Now, this also was based on a book. Uh, this was a little bit more well known. This was on top of the bestseller lists for uh, weeks and weeks. Uh, the film actually. Um, uh, you know, it's it's animation with animals, but it's not cute. Uh, oh, it's, it's not cute. <laughs> not exactly cute. If anything, uh, and actually going back to Guillermo del Toro, he's said about this film that it goes back to a tradition with having animals for a socio-political context. It's not about simply having animals sing songs and go la-di-da. The animals are... It's more about the story and the characters presenting a message. To, to summarize the the, uh, the plot, I would probably say the simplest way to do it is to say that <laughs> this is uh, Bambi if it was Mad Max as well. Uh, <laughs> it's about a it's bunch about, of animals trying to find their way home. Not necessarily – well – in a way, it's about rabbits who are driven from their warren by, by men and are searching for a new home. 
Uh, the problem is they run into certain death wherever they go. Mm. And sometimes this film does get very bloody. A lot of people who saw this as children will say, will point to a certain scene that traumatized them in their life. But it's... Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's interesting because the movie's not completely without humor. Maybe... 90% of it's without humor. But uh, when those moments of humor do show up, they, you've been through so much tension that when you laugh, you really laugh. Because yeah. And there laugh. are a couple of songs in the movie, but they were, first of all, like contractual obligation. And the second thing was, uh, actually, Art Garfunkel did a couple of songs for the film, I believe. And yeah. one of them he was initially kind of embarrassed about because he thought it was kind of sappy. <laughs> and uh, and I'm blanking on the name of the Bright song. Eyes. Thank you, Bright Eyes. I love that song. And uh, but then because this movie became a hit and the song became a hit, then he's like, okay, now I'll put it back on my album. <laughs> uh, so let's but take a the film quick is, look in a moment. But what? Oh, sure, go ahead. But the film is it is in some cases relentless because you do have these scenes where uh, of kind of intense suffering and and violence and it's very jarring because it is done with animals yeah uh, but then there are those moments of levity which you're very thankful for when they definitely does let up and then when there are these sublime moments of uh of yeah there uh, are a few moments where the animators they don't stick to just completely realistic backdrops uh like on the one hand a lot of the film takes place not only in realistic backdrops they're actually places in England that it's specifically set in. Uh, but there are also moments where it becomes uh, a little more fantastical. There's a prologue of the film where they show sort of the backstory, and I believe that Right, looks and they very, create a uh, world that isn't creative. just – it's not just our world. We see it from the rabbit's point of view, and they have a religion. They have issues that they have to deal with, sometimes political and sometimes social. And you, and you never expect that from a film about rabbits. No. But it's a complete world that they build and one that's rarely seen in animation. Yeah, so let's take a quick look at Warship Town. Hazel. That's John Hurt, by the way.
so uh, that's Watership Down. It's uh, and it's also now in the Criterion Collection. Uh, it's gotten one updated. Of, yeah. Uh, and it's one of only a few movies on the collection, right? Oh, well, no, it's one of only three Criterion films that are animated. Yeah, and Wes Anderson takes up the other ones, the jerk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, one one more note of interest with this too: the the director wasn't. This was his first movie. He originally was a literary agent. His name's Martin Rosen, uh, and he uh, just read the book and just wanted to make it into a movie, even though he had never worked in animation before. And it was that that was one of the fascinating things to me is that somebody who had never even thought about drawing a line or doing anything like that could lead a team and do it certainly gives thing. you hope. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, so in moving on, so in one last thing we wanted to talk about with sort of the independent movement of animation, uh, we come back to America and we get uh, Mr. Ralph Bakshi, who. Um, you know he's uh, he actually has a very important place in just film history in general because uh, Fritz the Cat was the very first X-rated animated movie. Uh, it got that because of lots of that. By the way, not a poster for Fritz the Cat. No, uh, but it, but I'm giving a little background as to you know this was a guy who came into the 70s and uh, you know and he has this quote where he says. Uh, I had this dream that animation could be the medium of the people. If Disney worked for the middle class, I was going to work for the kids in the street. So his goal was, all right, I want to make kind of lower, grittier films, you know, more like in the style of what 70s filmmakers were doing. Like he saw himself more aligned with Scorsese than he did with Disney. Yeah. And Fritz the Cat came out in 1972, first X-rated animated film. Uh Made and a lot it actually, of money. was the first animated film to gross over one million dollars at the box. One hundred million dollars. One million dollars <laughs> with the pinky up. <laughs> a lot of people saw that movie apparently. Yeah. Um, but then he went on to do more. He tried to break a little bit in the mainstream. Uh, he was the first person to adapt Lord of the Rings. Uh, although, you know, whether or not that's on level with the Peter Jackson movies, that's that's. <laughs> uh, we got but, we got a 1978 Lord of the Rings fan too. Awesome. Um, but he one of the things that's interesting with Bakshi was that he was very interested in the style of rotoscoping. That that is the sort of process that's been around since the, almost the beginning of animation, right. where you take an actor and you animate over him or her. And what, what uh, happens first is that you have actors on a, ba a very bare stage. Uh, basically just a giant empty room with a few props, maybe a table and a door with no wall if they have to go through a door. And you have and you shoot them uh, acting out the scene. And then once you have the film footage, you then draw an animated character over their body shape. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the, the 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 style is so precise that when people saw American Pop, they could recognize the actors who were playing the parts. I mean, some of these people were just actors, but the friends who saw who they had who saw it said, wait, I know that guy, that animated man up there. Yeah. So he comes to, after Lord of the Rings, he, uh, I think he, he was actually working on another movie at the time uh, that came out a year later uh, called Hey, Good Looking. But in 1981, he puts out this movie, American Pop, which... Um, whether it's his best, whether it's not his best movie, I, I don't know. It's it's you know it, it, it has its problems, but it, it it takes a kind of ambitious leap into 
adult storytelling. It, it's trying to tell a story that spans over the entire 20th century. It's the story of a family of musicians starting from the early 20th century going all the way to the to the 80s when, yeah. the, when the film comes out. Yeah, and you follow them from when they first come from Russia and then one generation goes into another and you see it from you know burlesque to jazz to uh, hippie rock, rock and to, roll and then hippie rock and punk. Yeah, the movie starts with... Uh, you know, uh, 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 Orthodox Jewish music, and it ends with Bob Seger. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and there have been plenty of films that have done this, so, uh, films that cover a certain family over a point of time. Ever summertime? You ever go fishing? So as you can see, it, uh, like I said, it, it looks so real, it's almost like, is this animation? You know, that's a question you can ask yourself. It allows the actors to seem real. It allows the people in the film to seem really natural, while still giving the animators the chance to draw any background that they want yeah. for the scene. Special guest actor Tom Waits. Sounds <laughs> like <laughs> It's been the same footage of the actor, but they've already changed the background. Yeah. yeah. Almost gives it kind of an impressionistic sort of feeling, right? Hmm. That was Janis Joplin. Okay, so um, yeah, so Ralph Bakshi he gets his five minutes. Uh, <laughs> well, rotoscoping didn't catch on in the way that they hoped. Uh, it, the film was not uh, American Pop was not a big hit, and rotoscoping uh, never really got really much further than that. No, I mean there it were a couple still more shows movies. up in certain su in surprising ways. Like, in our, yeah. and the idea of filming people and using them as stand-ins for animated figures is going to come into play in our last film as well. Yeah, and uh, now let's go. Let's move on a little bit to anime. Um, woo. Yay, woo. Uh, now, 1988 is a pretty big year for anime, uh, Japanese animation. Um, you have uh, three movies come out, and we're going to talk about two of them. Uh, the first one is Akira. And Akira is a film which is... Uh, you know, the first time you watch it, it's it's really mind-blowing. And part of that is because of how much work the animators put into this movie that you can almost take for granted. Because, uh, just to throw out some numbers out there, it's comprised of 160,000 single images, 2,212 shots. There, are, there were 70 animators, 327 colors. And, you know, and 50 were specifically created for the movie. So think, what, you know. what that basically means is all those number, numbers are double what normally goes into an animated film. 
yeah. meaning all several more shots, several uh, uh, twice as many colors, twice as many scenes. And the reason they use so many colors is actually quite interesting. Uh, this is the director, well, the co-director, Katsuhiro Otomo. Who I think he was the main director. Love, he, he worked with another director. Okay. Uh, but the reason there are so many colors is because most of the movie takes place at nighttime. And in order to make things seem less dark, you have to make the scene colorful. So you add more colors into the spots to eliminate the blackness. This is a nighttime scene uh, from the film. Here's another nighttime scene. There are pro there are hundreds of colors in this one yeah. shot. And as you can see, the, the director took a lot of influence from uh, Blade Runner, uh, or among other things. Uh, the movie's actually also set in 2019 in uh, what we call Neo-Tokyo. <laughs> And, uh, yes, four more years. Uh, and, um, and it's about a future society where <laughs> it's about uh, a future society where the government is experimenting on psychic, uh, psychically powered people. Uh, one of them is named Tetsuo and he is trying to be, uh, and his friend Kaneda is trying to save him. Yes. And but it's a very, uh, it is a somewhat bleak, pretty violent uh, uh, sci-fi film. Yeah, again, not not a movie exactly for kids. In fact, uh, it can get pretty bloody and pretty gross. Uh, there are a lot of times where characters, uh, like I think Tetsuo, he he grows, he gets a giant arm. Well, for after, part of the movie. after his arm gets cut off. Well, for, for after his arm gets cut off, he grows an appendage that is. Made of wires. Made of, organs. yeah, it's made of lots of things. And the movie climaxes in a gigantic uh, bulbous, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but uh, probably the oh, best way. Oh, I got a way. picture of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where is it? Um, okay. Okay. Um, so it, that's one of the type of images. Um, you know, I'm just going to open this because it gives a great idea of the intensity. for an animated film. So, um, by the way, also based on manga, in case uh, it might not be obvious. Now we stop. Oh, the spoiler. Spoiler. All right. So anyway, now should we move on or have anything else to say about Kira? No. Okay, so the <laughs> next uh, – now, the other things in 1988. So Studio Ghibli at that time is starting to uh, get its footing into uh, Japanese animation. Studio Ghibli was uh, 
is, or rather was. It's uh, still, well, maybe they've Technically closed. still is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. It was started by Hayao Miyazaki, who was, basic, who was uh, known as the, uh, the Walt Disney of Japan. Yeah, he, he started off, he made a couple of films uh, that are still widely regarded today, uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and uh, Castle in the Sky. Uh, but in 1988, the studio uh, did something kind of interesting. They made two different movies, one uh, which uh, became kind of like almost the, the Mickey Mouse of, uh, of, Japan. of Japan, My Neighbor Totoro, where it was about uh, two little girls who go away for, to the country uh, with their family, and they meet all these little woodland creatures, and one of them is a giant troll named Totoro. And uh, on the one hand, you have the fuzziest, that. cutest thing that has ever been put to celluloid. Believe me, if you see one, you will want one for yourself uh, or for your kids. And while they're doing that, they're also making a film called Grave of the Fireflies, which is by uh, another Oops. of the major directors at Studio Ghibli named Isao Takahata. And this is a very different movie. This is set in just after, uh, right, right near the end and just after the end of World War II. And uh, the movie concerns uh, a brother and a sister. And uh, the brother, I think, is maybe around eight or nine or ten. And the, do- and the kid is a, is a little bit younger. And their parents are killed in the war. They, they, want, they try to stay with an aunt, and that doesn't work out. So the brother decides, all right, I'm going to take care of my sister, and we'll try to just live you know, however we can. And to me, the, the, the fascinating thing about this film is that uh, whether they intended it or not, they almost brought this almost like the, the style of Italian neorealistic films into... Japanese animation. You're taking two people who, uh, you know, could have conceivably existed, or at least they're trying to convey that level of realism. Uh, you know, and it, you know, the movie wasn't a giant success. Um, and especially, they the funny thing was that they put it on a double bill with My Neighbor Totoro because they didn't have a lot of <laughs> the, the thing. <laughs> Well, here's That's, the, well, here's the kicker. Question. Well, here's the kicker. They, the problem was they didn't have much faith in Totoro. And so uh, they would put that first on the double bill, and then people wouldn't stick around for Grave of the Fireflies because they would leave all happy and, you know, excitable. And, you know, they want to stick around for a movie about watching two kids slowly decaying from malnutrition and uh, the elements. But... But it still stays, I think, as one of the one of the highlights of just not only Japanese animation but just Japanese film. The story that uh, you know it, it could be very easy to turn this into something that would be really exclusive to Japan that would appeal to that history, but it tries to make it a little bit simpler. It tries to take it on a much more you know, for lack of a better term, human level. And the very important thing about both Akira and Grave of the Fireflies, even though they're two completely different films, is that they help to bring Japanese animation to the rest of the world. So if you've ever seen a teenager with uh, an anime backpack or reading some sort of manga, it's because of these two films. (laughs) Yes. And it's the reason that uh, Studio Ghibli films, which are still great today, are getting released in the United States. Yeah. And yet, I and somehow, Grave of the Fireflies has gotten a little bit overlooked over time. In fact, among maybe the... maybe because it makes everybody cry. It kind of does. I'm showing one of the scenes that hopefully won't make you cry. There 
although it sounds a little low for this section, but there are subtitles coming up in a moment. Notice how much time they're taking uh, in between, you know, shots. It's like they're not rushing anything. It's closer to how you'd expect it in real life. I thought you said this wasn't going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I lied. I'm still traumatized from seeing that movie. Don't worry, though. Uh, we do have Lighter Fair coming up. Uh, yes. A film that probably... Okay. Uh, Beauty and the Beast. Okay. So... Yeah, so you get a little bit at, of applause. We for left that. Disney pretty far back in our presentation because by the time of the uh by the t- by the 1980s Disney had gone into a serious slump. Their work was not uh as artistically or commercially successful as it had been uh when Walt Disney was alive. Part of this was due to Walt Disney's death, but also it was simply uh simply because the it had lost uh a, a lot of direction and this started to pick up again in what's called the disney renaissance and at the height of the disney renaissance is beauty and the beast yeah this movie now uh, now the, part of the 1991 in 1991 <laughs> now to start off with the big thing about this film this is the first animated film to uh, get nominated for an academy award um well but, for best picture well, for an Academy Award for Best Picture, we should say. I mean, they've been winning awards for songs or whatever for years. But and this actually kind of upset some people. I rem- I think from from what I've read about it, that there were some people who were flabbergasted that you put a cartoon up a, as a real movie. Yeah. Are you kidding? <laughs> um, but this movie it, it takes you back to the fairy tales of Disney's early years, and yet. The the, inter- the great thing about this movie, though, is that by now there's a little bit more sophistication. It's now 50 plus years since Snow White, even though the film opens actually with the same kind of shot pushing in on the castle that happened in Snow White. So uh, it has those roots in the Disney classics, but this time it's moved on to having deeper characters and also with uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken the songs then kind of also went into uh, almost a Broadway flavor, I think. Um, And Disney had wanted to do, had been thinking about developing Beauty and the Beast since the 1940s, although he just never got around to it. Yeah. Uh, And uh, the movie, I think what's great about the film is that 
Okay, yeah, again, of course, you bring your kids to it. They'll love the talking lamps and the the clocks and you know there there are puns in the movie that are that I I, I wrote one down while I was taking notes for this movie where uh, uh, the, the the clock Cogsworth says uh, if it's baroque, don't fix it. <laughs> if it's not no no if it's baroque, don't fix it. I don't know. Uh, all right. You've lost all credibility. I have. <laughs> no, I, I, that might have been mine. All right. The point is, though, <laughs> but characters here, uh, you know, again, you had a thing like Snow White where, you know, as much as there is to love about that movie, the relationship between, like, Snow White and the prince, you know, not that deep. It's pretty shallow. It's pretty – they didn't work on that that much. Here, though, you want to watch the dynamic between – Bell and the Beast, because there's a lot of conflict that is going on in the story. There's a lot that is, you know, at stake for the Beast to maybe try to become human again, and uh, for Bell to uh, actually reach him half reach him halfway and to fall in love with him, which is not, you know, it's not like that can happen automatically. And that's something that I really respect about this film. That you know, you, you sometimes can be an issue with Disney movies is. How much depth do you give to the main characters? But here I think you know th that's one of the main things that sets it apart and why it's so significant. All right, let's see the clip. All right. This one, not that songy, but... <laughs> but watch the storytelling, though. Watch how, you know, there is acting going on. Like, not just kind of a animated person. Sorry, didn't mean to scare any of you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and so, like I said, the, the there's a lot of significant things with this movie, and it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun, and yet it's also has a lot of depth to it. It's, my my it's favorite stories about this. Okay. I mean, it's a great film, and you know I love watching it. Uh, but I really like looking at the sort of technical things. There's a animator who worked on this called Randy Fulmer, who was basically just drew effects, not really characters or anything. His job was on this film was to draw the flames on the end of uh, 
there's a character called Lumiere, and he's a candlestick who's alive, and he has flames at the end of these candles that he has. And this man's job, Randy Fulmer, was basically just to draw the flames. And he estimated by the end of the film he had drawn 19,000 flames by hand. <laughs> and there are animators just designed, just trained to do this. Like, right. so there are some animators whose specialty is writing, is drawing rain and slick roofs. Yes. Which apparently is super hard if you're an animator. Yeah. It's crazy what. And again, animation just takes a lot of work and artistry. Yeah, yeah you need it actually. Really puts it into you focus. need animators who animators become actors. Like, there's also speaking of anima- one more quick thing before we move on. There's another animator named Andres Deja. Who, uh, when I watched him in the uh, the special features, it was funny because he reminded me a little bit of the uh, of the German filmmaker Werner Herzog, where he was this very intense guy who he loved drawing villains. So he drew Gaston and he drew uh, Jafar and Aladdin, and his favorite one was Scar and the Lion King. So <laughs> I just love that. And when he's interviewed, he just takes it very seriously, but seems like a cool guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, speaking with the Disney Renaissance, so it wasn't just with the the hand-drawn animation department. There were two other movies that were really significant in the 90s and, you know, helped pay the way. One was The Nightmare Before Christmas. Give a little clap. Give a little clap. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, a stop-motion animated film. Uh, yes. Similar to the way that Prince Ahmed was stop-motion animation, except these puppets are three-dimensional. Yeah, fully sculpted, uh, f- fully colored, and yeah. th- it's stop motion was the way they animated King Kong. It was the way they animated those skeletons I showed you earlier. Yeah. Uh, it was a very uh, it's a painstaking process, though. Yeah, I mean it's it may be one of the most painstaking processes. One, one minute takes a week to shoot. So if you do the math, you know at the least uh, this movie took you know maybe seventy weeks. Seventy weeks. You know, if it's a 70-minute animated film. If they were working around the if clock. If they were working around the clock with no sleep and... Uh, thanks, unions. Yes, thanks, unions. <laughs> and, um, and even more than Beauty and the Beast, this what's interesting here is how much uh, the songs play into it and how the music uh, tells the story. And I think actually early on, before they even had a finished script, uh, Tim Burton and the director, Henry Selick, met with uh, Danny Elfman, to make the score and to make the songs and they would kind of decide okay now what's this song going to do how's this song going to tell the story and so in a way it's also a combination of the stop motion and Danny Elfman's music which you know that's it's also probably his masterpiece um and you know again the movie it's mixing Halloween and Christmas it's kind of a satire on you know what if uh you know instead of you know, it's it's a character who finds Christmas and decides to do it himself, and so there's a lot of German expressionism, and uh, you know, even Edward Gorey, which you know that could be a Halloween Town character, yes. and um, you know, even Dr. Seuss kind of comes into it, and you know, it's just a combination of so many elements that come together, and you know, it also can be really scary for kids, and yet, how musical is it? I mean, very, a little bit. It's hard to pick just one, but it's hard not to do this one. <laughs> well, well, well. What have we here? Santa 
That is a uh, oogie boogie. how the sets are lit like that you know this you know you had to create all that it's actually a very small set yeah that you then have to like yeah like those figures are probably this big yeah Sorry, we can't show the rest of the song. <laughs> we, we wish we could, but we only have so much time. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's one of those movies that if you get to it at the right age, you know, it'll hit you. And, again, uh, uh, to, not to be too technical, but uh, all the sets have to be built by uh, – have to basically be built by hand. And they have to be very durable because if anything breaks before you finish filming the scene, you basically have to start over. Because then there's going to be a continuity error and people are going to notice it right away. Yeah. Everything has to be super durable. It can't melt under the hot lights. It, ha- it can't break. And for certain scenes where a character has to be sh- shown showing a different emotion, they have to build spare heads for each of the models. And there are basically hundreds of heads for each model. Yeah. Uh, like Jack Skellington had 400 heads or faces, you should say. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So kind of an intense process when it came to making sure that every single item and prop was set. And also all the cameras that had to be used uh, on the set. Yeah. I mean, the animators work 12 to 14 hours a day. Mm. And they this was a quote from Don Hahn, who was a producer on Beauty of the Beast. He said, because these people are miracle workers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and speaking of miracle workers. Oh, those workers, are all the heads oh. there. Yeah, they so were shown on exhibition actually uh, during. Uh, was that during the Tim Burton exhibit? Possibly. Okay. Uh, they still had some spares, the ones that hadn't broken or had just fallen apart. Yeah. Uh, but that gives you an idea of exactly what you have to do. And in a and in a movie where every character is a puppet and multiple characters are moving in one shot, you have to keep careful track of these things. Yeah. Other and if you make one mistake, you lose a day or a week's worth of work. Yeah, yeah, that too. Again, it's just like you're lighting a set. That's why you bring up German Expressionism. They were making like a full-on 20s German horror movie, only with you know Santa Claus, only with puppets, <laughs> <and> yeah, <laughs> and reindeer, and uh, in the Tim Burton style. Yeah. So, <laughs> so from Nightmare Before Christmas, though, so we get the innovation in stop motion. And then we move on to Toy Story, which is the first computer animated film. Uh, feature length. Pic- feature length animated film. Now, uh, the reason that this kind of got together was because Pixar Studios 
uh, who had been making short films for a while, had made a short called Tin Toy. And uh, it involved, I think, a baby just chasing after like toy a toy. And it was kind of like a group of toys. And from that, they decided, well, what if we have a whole movie set in the world of toys and how toys relate to their their kid owners and you know how they're you know really bond with them and uh at the same time though the animators at pixar decide that if we're going to do this we have to make it character and story driven first that needs to be driven by that more than anything else right because in addition to short films pixar had been making I, their bread and butter was these were these mundane things like commercials for Listerine and lifesavers, <laughs> yes. and they actually before they got into films, Pixar made uh, <laughs> hard to believe they made they made software for for uh, cat scans to help people image things, and also imaging uh, spy uh, satellite imaging software for spy agencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of technical stuff. Yeah, and, but uh, they. And none of the people who made Toy Story had ever worked on a film before. Mm-hmm. But they brought it together pretty reasonably well. And there's a special reason why they use toys in their first film instead of human I, figures. I have, I have one word for you, Andrew. Plastics. Right. <laughs> Sorry. The that... reason that they use toys is that they made the film about toys, I mean, toys that look like people, but instead of regular people was because... Basically, when you make people, when they made people in uh, in the film, they look like they're made of plastic. Yeah. So they couldn't do humans very well, but they, well, what kind of people look like they're made out of plastic? Toys. Toys. Exactly. Thank you, class. Working within the medium, more or less. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and just like with Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, a lot of work went into this movie, uh, and they. It was like the process too, by the way, really fast before we show the clip. They actually had they actually made clay models of the characters' whole heads and profiles and then scanned them into computers. And that was basically how then they used to uh to animate them. So in a way, it was like a more advanced form of uh rotoscoping and claymation modeling, because they had to get those images first. They didn't just draw lines in like a, on a computer screen and come up with the characters. They kind of had a three-dimensional model to work on, and so that was then what they brought into the systems and then animated it as they would any other animated film. Um, right. So. And before this, the longest film Pixar had ever oh, made was sorry. five minutes long. Uh, this was going to be eighty minutes long. Yes, something like that. Somehow they pulled it together. And of course, it's Tom Hanks as Woody. For those of you, one maybe one of you doesn't know. Hopefully, you all know. Tom Hanks. Uh, Pixar came to him with the idea of him voicing Woody, and they showed him a three-minute test footage for the film. And after he saw it, he's like, "Can I see that again?" <laughs> he was so impressed that he was on board all right right away. 
Yeah. He uh I think yeah, you mentioned Turner Hooch. Yeah, they Is that what you just said? No. Okay. <laughs> I was just are I was you, entranced by you, the little green figure are, and are I you okay? I, I heard you, but I didn't hear the Turner and Hooch part. So I wanted to well, yeah, fit that it in that they there. used they used clips from I'm going on to a better place now. Anyway. All right. Um, no, so they used tr- clips of Turner and Hooch to show him like as if animated to Woody. That's why I meant to fill in for you. Sorry. But the film was released uh, uh, in November of 1995, and it became the highest grossing film of the year. Yeah. Uh, John Lasseter got an honorary uh, – he was the he was the director. director of the film. There you uh, go. He got an honorary Oscar for the film, much like uh, Walt Disney did for Snow White. Mm. And the film was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Yeah. So Joss Whedon, uh, Academy <laughs> Award nominee. He's a, he wrote he was one of the screenwriters on it. Oh, one side note by the way, Joss Whedon wrote the line uh, "Wind the Frog" when they were uh, the toys are preparing to leave uh, the character Sid's room, and <laughs> he wrote that line without the animators having made a frog, and so the animators had to make one for that one line. Thanks a lot, Joss Whedon. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to our last film. Yes. I'm sorry, it's going to end. Yeah. But this last one uh, is is a good one, and maybe one that some, some of you might have might have passed by, and that is the Adventures of Tintin. Now, this is a movie that t- is now part of a new process called motion capture, and uh, this wasn't the first motion capture movie. To make that clear, uh, the director Robert Zemeckis uh, in the in the aughts had made three films, uh, The Polar Express, Beowulf, and uh, A Christmas Carol, and he used the motion capture process. And also, Peter Jackson used uh, motion capture to create the character of Gollum in the Lord of the Rings films. And And it was because uh, of that that Steven Spielberg came to him. Yeah, and this guy you're seeing on the screen right in front of you is the man who played Gollum in the Lord of the Rings films. He also plays uh, this character in The Adventures of Tintin. Captain Captain Haddock. Haddock. And... The the motion cap process is somewhat similar to rotoscoping, where actors act out their scenes on a very spare set. This is this is the set that they worked on. There's Steven Spielberg down there, uh, telling them what to do because he's Steven Spielberg and everybody listens. <laughs> yeah. uh, and these little dots you see on their bodies, on the suits, and on their faces—that's to help the computer track their the movements of their face and to get yeah. their and their bodies to get the acting down. Yeah, and what's interesting is initially Spielberg came to Peter Jackson to just animate uh, the little dog Snowy that's in the film, and uh, but then Jackson told him, you know what, you could do this whole thing in motion capture, right? And Spielberg needed a little convincing, like he was actually—I think he was actually shown a test. Of Snowy, and then I think Peter Jackson was Haddock, which yeah. is a very weird video. But the point is, Spielberg realized, you know what? I'll try it this way. Maybe I can do this, and uh, and so that's what he did. He he spent 31 days on a soundstage directing the film as he would any other movie. He was on the set, aiming up his shots, directing it just as he would any other film. But because of now the technology from motion capture and uh, you know people like Peter Jackson, his company, uh, you know the most popular filmmaker of the past fifty some odd years can now make an animated film and do it just any way he wants. And it is very bizarre because this is the set and these are the actors. But when you see the clip that we're going to show you, it looks absolutely nothing like that. And part of the reason I picked this clip, now this is going to be the longest clip we're showing you, 
but it's for a purpose. Now this comes in an action sequence, not unlike one you might see in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which uh, initially the reason Spielberg wanted to do this movie was because uh, after Raiders came out, somebody came to him and said, you know, your movie reminds me a bit of Tintin. And Spielberg was like, what's that? And he was given a comic book and the rest is history. So, sorry, I know the sound is a little low again, but... Now, of course, this sequence is one of those action scenes that's all about kind of the MacGuffin and uh, the device. And, uh... Just watch. <laughs> the alternate title for this film was Damn You Falcon <laughs> and uh, so the thing about that shot if anybody may or may not have noticed all one shot unbroken and so now, again, with animation and things like motion capture, you know, a director like Spielberg can make that whole sequence where if it was live action, he'd have to do it in lots of different cuts. He'd have to get a lot of different shots and coverage. Here, the camera just moves around like as if, you know, it's anything. Yeah. <laughs> so You're no longer limited by the, by the limits of a camera or basically the laws of physics by what you shoot in animation. Exactly. But it's, uh, yeah. And so <laughs> that, and so now we've come to a place in animation where, you know, animators can do anything they want. Ultimately. I mean, they can't, you know, there's no limitations on, uh, how, what kind of characters you can draw, what kind of environments you can create. The ultimate things just come down to the same things as any movie. What kind of stories and characters are you telling? Is it still compelling? Um, if a movie like Tintin works, it's not just because of a shot like that, which, you know, you could almost argue is showing off, but it's because there are engaging situations and a storyline, which goes back to a lot of the films that I think we've been looking at tonight. Uh, right. so in any final words, Andrew? Well, that's the, uh, final film. 
so I just want to give you a preview of basically what we have come, what the world of animation has right now. Uh, Pixar is still going strong. They've made a ton of great movies, uh, a lot of which they basically clean out the uh, best animated film category whenever they get with the Oscars come around. The jerks. Sometimes they even get nominated <laughs> for best picture. It's much more frequent now. Uh, Disney is still uh, playing to a family crowd and its films are getting critical and artistic, uh, artistic success. Uh, Studio Ghibli is still going, although they're rumored to be in decline over in Japan. Uh, they've made a few films. Uh, the lo most recent one uh, was uh, when Marnie was there. Yes, uh, and I think part of it is because some of the animating directors that have been there are starting to get a little bit older and can't, you know, they aren't, they don't have the same energy that they used to. So people like Miyazaki and the director of Grave of the Fireflies, they've made movies that have come out in the past couple of years, and these might be their last films. Yeah, so Ghibli's, uh, uh, the studio's future is in doubt, although hopefully they'll be able to find someone to replace those two giants of animation. Yeah. Uh, but other than the large screen, the small screen animation scene is thriving. Uh, on television, there was a lot more animation coming out, mm -hmm. which is really impressing critics and audiences alike. So you don't have to look very far for good animation. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. You can even look upstairs where there is some stuff. Exactly. <laughs> you can find lots of animated films right here in the library and uh, and books that... Forget you know, like... reading. <laughs> It's not like we're in a library or something. Um, yeah, and so I think that animation can is going to continue for a long time. It's just going to depend oh, well, on I how... I don't think anyone says it was going to stop. Well, no, no, but I mean animated <laughs> features. As long as you have people like Pixar and... You know, when Pixar's not a person. Well, the people <laughs> at Pixar, the people who inhabit the Pixar building and make films. Yes. And, uh, and also at Disney and... Uh, you know, and also hopefully we get more independently done animated films. Uh, that might be another presentation for another time, but you know, just to run up a couple of names, uh, if you ever check out online a movie like Sita Sings the Blues is an example of that. And uh, and yeah, so with that, I am Jack. I'm Andrew. And uh, this remember, has been the Wages of Cinema Animation Show. Have a good night, everybody. Oh, and remember, the wages of cinema is death. <laughs> That's our catchphrase in the podcast. <laughs>